This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear in excess on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area and you're looking for that classic arcade fun, you'll get a kick out of the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And this is No Quarter, a weekly podcast where we talk about classic video arcade games, some more classic than others. When you say weekly, you mean W-E-A-K-L-Y, right? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, we're pretty weak. Our, our mojo is pretty weak on some games, especially this one, man. It's a weakling podcast. Oh, it's tough. <laughs> um, classic game, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm just bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> I've always known I was bad at this one. I always knew we would discuss this game eventually because mm-hmm. it's one of the big ones. And I yes. always knew I would be embarrassed by my score because for some reason I just can't do this game. Did you get negative scores? Did no, you? I did better than one would <laughs> normally do on the story, Charlie. Yeah. So I got that going for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I did pretty poorly. And like you, I, I saw this coming and I had a great time anyway, though. Oh, sure. I mean, this is this is one of the greats. We'll get into that, though. Let's let's talk some feedback. Well, one of the first things we should bring up is a bit of news that we actually tried to talk about last week. But we had a bit <laughs> of a recording staff who and redid things and never got around to re-mentioning this. And it was that um, uh, John Salter, an arcade champion, had set a couple of new world records both for uh, a high score on armor attack and for the longest arcade single credit run in any game ever, which is a whole bunch of time. How do you do, Karen? And what was his, what was his score? Well, the final score in armor attack he got was 2 million, uh, let's see, 2 million, 211,990. And that beat the previous record by only a little bit. Previous record was 2 million and 9,000. That still sounds like a lot. It sounds like, yeah, it's probably 2 million more than I'd get. <laughs> armor attack, which I've played, boy, I can't imagine getting that kind of score. But I think the bigger deal is he played for 85 hours and wow. 16 minutes straight on a single quarter. How do you do that? I don't know. And the weird thing is he beat the previous record holder who had 84 hours and 48 minutes. So he barely beat that record. That's that's insane. Does Armor Attack have like one of those bugs or not really bugs, I guess, but exploitable features where you can rack up a bunch of lives and then just kind of burn them off while you take a break? Or is this just like 80 hours? Well, in this case, you couldn't, though, because even if you got that, this is how long he played on a single quarter with one credit. So this was one credit period was 85 hours and 16 minutes. Wow. I, I can't even imagine staying awake that long, let alone concentrating on an arcade game to get a high score. Exactly. I mean, I can't imagine doing it again. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, very, very impressive. We'll have a link to a write-up from GameInformer.com in the show notes. Uh, remarkably, remarkably impressive world records there. Well done, John. Yeah, that's that's something else. 
Yeah, so let's see. Oh, we also got another thing that I think we mentioned last week and never got around to re-mentioning in our retake was we got email from Mark Johnston because him and his buddy Rick Taylor have started up their own podcast. And he says uh, in his email here, uh, just wanted you guys to know that because of your podcast and Flax podcast about podcasting, I decided to start my very own pinball podcast. It's called the Lock is Lit podcast, and you can check it over at Lock is Lit podcast podcast.com and since he is a friend of the show we thought we would give him a quick shout out and we'll have a link to that if you want to sully yourself with pinball stuff <laughs> we'll have a link to that podcast in the show notes boo carrington boo <laughs> boo boo to the pinball um let's see oh speaking of pinball here's something else we received could have been this week could have been last week could have been a few weeks ago i don't know i don't know pinball, we don't care <laughs> but well it's got some pinball aspects in it and it's Super interesting. So Ryan, who, um, speaking of which, who has his own podcast, up, uh, which is the classic console gamer news. I'll have a link to that in the show notes too. Links to all the podcasts this week. Uh, he goes by Spitfire, Spitfire 1500. He's written in before. And he said, hey guys, found this just after watching Tag the Assassination Game. It's a short film that was on HBO, quite nostalgic. So he sent us a link I, to a YouTube video. I will pass that link on into the show notes. And I highly recommend our listeners to drop everything and go watch this. It's a classic animation short from 1982 and it's called Arcade Attack and it is full of 80s goodness. So the idea here is the uh, the city gets attacked, well the world really, but gets attacked by video um uh, characters. So basically, like, imagine space invaders type things come and attack the city. And it gets defended by people off pinball machines. <laughs> so <laughs> the characters from Pinball Back Glass come to life and go do battle to defend the Earth against arcade villains. And it's quite interesting. It didn't end the way I thought it would end. And it's lovely. It's not too long. It's from 1982. It's got 1982 effects, 1982 hair. <laughs> it's all glorious. I, I I loved it. Nice. So yeah, we'll have a link to that in the show notes too. Um, in fact, if I recall, and I'll, I'll dig up the link to this in, for the show notes too, there was something along the line. It was a, a, a recent short film along the lines of New York under pixel attack, I think is what it was called. And it was a similar sort of idea that it was a modern short film where eight bit pixel sort of characters are doing battle against each other and they're superimposed onto uh, a modern background setting. So they're sort of brought into the real world. And that was really interesting too. We may have talked about it on an earlier show, but I'll dig up the, the show link to that so you can watch that video too. But um, that's a modern one. And while it's super fun, it's not as super fun as the one from 1982 with its 1982 effects. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Let's see. Um, We've got a couple other quick pieces of feedback we should we should mention as well. Uh, Monty wrote us with a nice little compliment, and I don't think anybody's brought this up before. And I guess we'll we'll talk about it now. He writes, "Love the podcast. Found out about your show through the Retro Junkies Network. So glad you have all your old episodes available through iTunes. Many podcasts do not do this. I've been spending the whole week catching up. So thanks for the feedback, Monty. But also, yeah, it it never really occurred to me to only list." a subset of podcasts when you when you go to places like iTunes or podcatchers i've never really seen the benefit of only listing a few shows i don't get it i don't know understand why podcasts do that what about you mike should we should we start cutting people off only list the latest half of a show well 
yeah, I think we should take the approach that some of the other ones do where the show, like the, the, the previous month worth of shows is free and then you pay to have access to the archive of previous shows because what's better than having to pay for something that used to be free? I like that idea. So all of our listeners should think back to all the shows they've listened to in the past more than a month ago and they should send us a bunch of money. I agree. I think that's the way it should work. New policy. Everybody listening, stop right now. Send us big money. Send us money. <laughs> Excellent. In fact, that's our new podcast slogan. Welcome to No Quarter. Send us money. <laughs> uh, okay, so two more quick ones. Cinecaster wrote in. Hello, Cinecaster, another friend of the show. And he said, I just listened to the Dungeons & Dragons episode. I'm not terribly familiar with that particular game, but it was a nice change of pace to get an episode covering a title that's a few degrees removed from your usual early 80s fare. Don't get me wrong. For the most part, I share your... Per- your partiality for the early to slash mid eighties games, but the main catalog is rich with too many hidden gems scattered across too many years to simply ignore everything from the nineties on as a regular listener of no quarter. I'd personally welcome more token excursions, huh, token <laughs> of this sort in future shows. I remember when you guys played rampage, I wrote in to rant about the game, citing many of the same gripes that Mike leveled at D and D in the latest episode, for instance, shallow mechanics, a lopsided dependence on endless, continuing a lack of stakes in the gameplay etc in other words i definitely agree with all that but i think those problems are primarily the sphere of multiplayer fight and go right quarter guzzlers who <laughs> rode into arcades like on the that. coattails of final flight yeah that's a that's a fantastic phrase there i agree so um he concludes down the bottom here, in my opinion, whether you love them or hate them, the shoot 'em ups of the later era, and he gives a few examples like Gigawin, Cyber, Cy Battler, Gunlock, these are all games I do not know, and they represent more of a logical extension of the Golden Age arcade spirit that I think we all venerate in that the games are simple to understand and hard to master. They rarely use more than two buttons, the experience doesn't suffer when you play alone, and perhaps most importantly, the whole genre is characterized by innovative and nuanced scoring systems that make you feel like you're fighting for something other than a perverse desire to be penniless. (laughs) I thought that was fantastically put. That actually made me excited to try some of those games, and I have been so negative on the whole idea of arcading in the 90s, so maybe I have been too close-minded well we got another letter from matthew hall along those same lines and he says uh hey there guys just been listening to the podcast for the for the past weeks loving it and i would hope that uh while listening to episode 52 that you would cover the multiplayer games like ninja turtles and simpsons because i remember there being many many others like that and even though you don't like fighting games would you be up for covering the first street fighter because of a unique version i remember playing in the arcade which had buttons that you had to hit hard for punch and kick. So let me know the chances uh, on on whether that might get covered or mentioned. Well, actually, um, yeah, I, we'll probably talk about one or two um, of the important fighting games, you know, and, and the side scrollers. And, you know, there are a bunch of like, like we were just talking about there. Are, there are a ton of games like the Simpsons and, and Ninja Turtles where it's the same mechanic with sort of a different skin slapped on it. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of these fight games and this, um, and, and Street Fighter was the first. And so it's, and that's a very important kind of hallmark moment in arcade gaming. So we'll probably talk about that one. I wouldn't look for us to be talking about Samurai Showdown and, and things like that, but, um, yeah, we'll probably talk about a few of those. I, again, what, for, for me, what, what, other than the, the, the weird button combinations and memorizing moves and stuff, it just seemed like, you know, and you saw this a lot in the eighties where somebody would come up with a great idea and then all the other companies would clone it. But it was even worse going into the nineties where 
again, it was just the same. It was the exact same game with with different. Okay, so now it's the Simpsons instead of the Ninja Turtles, and and what you know, what skin is on this fighting game? Capcom versus Marvel, Capcom versus whatever you know. And um, so we'll talk about a few of those, but I wouldn't look for us to get really deep into that oeuvre. I agree. Yeah, I found it's hard for me to tell the fighting games apart. And it's hard for me to tell apart the, um, as Seneca has to put it, the fight and go right yes. <laughs> quarter guzzlers. <laughs> uh, for me, they're all the same game. You, know, like you look at one and you look at them all. But right. I am excited about the idea of looking at some maybe later ones that are different. And so maybe we'll have to take a peek at the games or if people have recommendations. Or if you are completely against us ever dealing with anything else that is beyond December 31st, 1989, then write in and let us know. Well, we just violated that last week with... Dungeons and Dragons. We are violators. We do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are the bits of feedback that I want to want to touch on, and I thought we could now charge forward into this week's ultra classic game. Nope, we can't jump on our ostriches just yet. Oh, <laughs> why, why is that? I, I wanted to mention. Um, okay, the the Space Paranoids poster. <gasps> yes, uh, our contest winner. Um, I don't know. I don't. I think we talked about a little bit about sort of the origins of the poster and how we got it, but not too much. And I, I did want to mention that um, there's a thread over on GameOver.net where the the actual PSD artwork file is posted. It's it's like seven or eight megs and it, it, it expands to 45 megs. So even if you didn't win the contest, you can you can download this and print your own posters using this art. This is the same art that, that the person who gave us the poster took to the printing service and had had made. So uh, there's a, there's a link to that in on, on the Facebook page, and we'll have that in the show notes as well. Fantastic! Very mm-hmm. very exciting. Yep, it's such a great looking poster. It is. Oh, every listener to this podcast should have that poster. It looks so awesome. <laughs> Well, we can't give them all away. Yes, we can. I'm announcing it now because they're going to start sending us in all that money because they listen to our old shows now realizing they had to pay. That's right. Now that we're rolling in it, we're printing posters for everybody. (laughs) Can we get on our ostriches now? We can get on our ostriches. (laughs) Excellent, because this week's game, as many people probably would have guessed from the flapping noises in the sample, is Joust from Williams Electronics in, I think, 1982. 1982. It's... What would you call this? It's it's a wraparound screen. So mm-hmm. so the screen doesn't the screen doesn't move itself, but you can fly off one side and back onto the other. The level itself doesn't change. It's always the same level. It just gets more difficult. And and you're a knight, and you mount a a, a an ostrich, which right. apparently in this game can fly. And your job is simply to knock off other uh, knights. That are flying on their on their on their ostriches, and the way right. you do the way you do that is you run into them, and if you're higher up on the screen than they are, then they get knocked off, and if they're higher up, then you get knocked off, and if you knock them off, then they turn into an egg, and the egg goes bouncing down the various platforms and to the bottom of the screen, and hopefully not into the lava that eventually appears at the bottom, and you get various points for picking up the eggs depending on how long you let the egg sit there and whether or not the the egg is mid, is in mid flight when you catch it and if you let it sit for too long it becomes a knight again and another ostrich flies in and he gets back on and comes after you and that's really all there is to the game i think there's a there's a buzzard that shows up every now and then and tries to track you mm-hmm. and, if you spend too lo- too long right Right, and the controls in this game could not be simpler. It is a two-way joystick, left and right, and a single button. All you have to do is tap this button and to, to flap your ostrich's wings and fly up, and you don't tap it, and you'll fly back down. And this is 
one of the hardest games I've ever played. And the thing is, we should mention, like, it's not even that a button where, oh, you hold it down and you're flapping. No, you gotta, you basically, every press is one flap. So if you want to go up, you have to press it, press it, press it. And the faster you press the button, the faster you're flapping. It basically is the flappy bird of 1982. This is such uh, a difficult game. I, I, and maybe this is different for a different experience for you, Carrington, and for other players, but I have a terrible time. I played this game for hours and hours and hours over the, the many, many years since I've been playing it. I've never got any better at it. But unlike other games where I just get frustrated and, and quit, this is a game that I keep coming back to and I play through like three levels. That's about how far I can get. It. And then I die and I keep playing it and it's frustrating, but I keep wanting to play it. Oddly, I have the exact same experience. I love the game. I've played it since it was new. I have put countless hours into playing this game. First, way back in the arcades when I put quarters in. Now in modern multicades, on MAME, all of that. I never get tired of this game. I also never get good at it. <laughs> wow. So we're both just suck at this game, I guess. But it's still fun. It's Because it's one of those games where in two seconds you can understand what you have to do. It is so incredibly straightforward, but not necessarily simple. Like, it's a game that takes real finesse to master a finesse i don't have um but no. a real finesse to master it and it's super fun it's just playful enough and just and and different enough i mean it's it's very different in in play mechanics than any other game we've talked about i mean like you say it's a left and right joystick but it feels very different because the physics in it is really good like great physics and the whole flapping to go up a certain amount and then you drop and and the speed of your flapping determines how quickly you can move up or down and you're just moving left and right but it's so smooth and so accurate and then eventually so fast i just i love the implementation of this game and to make things worse i tend to be <laughs> I, I call myself an egg chaser because i don't know what else to call it <laughs> when i get one of those eggs i get sort of obsessed like i have to i get the sense of urgency that if i don't get it that night's going to pop up and so i my tendency is to try and chase it down to the point where like i'm, I'm not paying enough attention to the other um to the other obstacles on the screen and i end up dying or and part of the problem is when when your ostrich lands on one of these platforms and continues to run in the direction that you were moving you and you try to and you reverse you don't just stop and and turn around there's actually he you know does this little skidding thing with the with the the ostrich feet and and has to turn around and then he starts off slowly and picks up speed and and so there's a, a you have to be very good i think at managing the the i guess the inertia um of of how the bird moves you know cuz you have the, the little parabolic arcs that the bird mm -hmm. goes in when you flap and then stop flapping and the more the more he's, the more rapidly you're flapping, the higher the arc's going to be at the top, and it, it's it's a very, as you said, the physics in in this game make make all the difference. And even though it, like you say, it's a it's a flying ostrich, which isn't a thing that happens in the real world. It feels <laughs> so smooth and so realistic. Like you absolutely believe that these little, you will believe an ostrich can fly. And <laughs> it's just, it's so great with such a great mechanic that you're not shooting anything. You basically have a, have a, um, a lance out in front of you. You got a pointy stick and you got to hit the other people with the pointy stick. And they're trying to hit you with their pointy sticks. And it's just, it's such a fantastic mechanic to keep everything tight and claustrophobic and, and fast moving. And even though you can wrap around, like I'll hover near the beginning and you can send an enemy away, but they go off the one side, they're immediately back in on the other side and they come at you. It keeps things frantic. It keeps things fun. It's amazing game mechanics. 
I like how they were talking about how originally, um, we should mention that this was designed by uh, John Newcomer, who also did our new. Comer, maybe? Uh, he did Joust 2, but he also was the fellow behind Narc and Sinistar, a game I loved and you less than loved. And then later yeah. did um, NBA Jam, so he's famous for that too, and a Laserdisc game, I think. But they originally, the development team, were going to use Eagles instead. It was going to be an Eagle that you were on, but they have really crappy ground motion. Like, if you made a real Eagle, the way they run isn't great. Whereas an ostrich is terrific for racing along the ground, for coming to a stop. It's got those long legs. And so they settled on the ostrich because he figured it's more, it's more credible to have a flying ostrich than a running eagle. So overall, it was sort of a better mechanic. And that's a real you know, mental leap. A lot of people wouldn't have considered a non-flying bird. And then they picked, um, if you play a two-player game, the player two is on a stork. And they really picked that because it has similar proportions to the ostrich. And then they decided vultures for the bad guys because, well, vultures, as they say, would be believably evil, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Now you'd mentioned the the second player, and I, I like that this is a this is a two player simultaneous game. So you can play two of the two of you are playing at the same time, and you can you can play cooperatively or not so cooperatively. Because in <laughs> yes. in addition to in addition to to competing for for the eggs and knocking and getting points for knocking the knights off of their their vultures, you can also knock each other off of your your ostriches, or I guess the other one's a stork. Um, and depending on how you feel about your co-player, uh, or what he just did to you previously, you can certainly hunt him down and do the same or worse. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, really there is no full on cooperative mode. If you're going to play cooperatively, it's just by agreement. And the reality is like when you, when you hit other people, bad guys or player two, and if you don't unmount them, if you're too close, you bounce off. And so things bounce around a bit in this game. And so you will necessarily at some point be skewering player two, even if you don't mean to. And then you, you can easily turn on each other and it just devolves from there. It's one of the really, it's one of the first really fun multiplayer games in the arcade, I think. Um, it comes from 1982. And it, it, I mean, it's an amazing solo game, but it is crazy super fun when you have two people playing at the same time. Yeah, that's one of the one of the things that I look forward to when I go to arcades. If if, if somebody's if I'm going with somebody, is is hopefully they'll have a joust machine and we can play a couple of rounds. Like I said, I suck at it, uh, but it's for whatever reason the suckage doesn't drive me away in anger and frustration. I continue to and I think I think I like the concept, the idea of joust more than I do playing it, just because I'm bad at it. But uh, not so much again that, that I want to quit or or that I get annoyed. Uh, and each, okay, each level as you're playing is called a wave. So, so you'll start off with, I think five or six of the, the enemy and they just, they kind of fly across the screen horizontally from left to right and, and then, and left and right to left. And, and they don't, I don't know, I don't know how the AI is programmed or if there really is one, they sort of follow your motion around the screen. So if you're in the upper areas, they'll kind of make their way up to the top. Um, and if you're down at the bottom, they'll, kind of ease down towards you, but there's, they won't turn around mid flight and come at, at you, that sort of thing, unless they bounce off of, of the platforms or each other. But as you play, they get faster and the screen fills up and each wave gets more and more difficult. And eventually I found myself on some, on three or level three or four, a lot where I would sort of be kind of trapped between the layers of enemies that were flying left to right. And the one below me that was flying 
uh, right to left and unable to get above the one above me and can't get down. I can't time it properly to drop down to the one below me. And so that's the sort of skill, I guess, that I lack in, in, in being able to, to time the flaps to get the arc just right to come down on one of these things as they move, move by below me. Now, if you take too long to clear the level off, eventually this vulture is going to show up or the pterodactyl or whatever it is. And, and that thing chases you more aggressively. Yes. They're supposed to. And I think we don't get chased as much because we don't <laughs> do well in this. I mean, there's three, supposedly three different kinds of night enemies coming at you on their, on their vultures. So there's the, the standard starter ones, which are the bounders. And they basically do just fly around randomly and they only barely occasionally react to you if they're right in front. But then there's the hunters, the next level up, and they're worth more and they supposedly seek you out more. I found that everybody kind of is random and everybody's kind of seeking me out, so I couldn't really tell the difference there. Um, then the highest level is the shadow lords and they're supposed to fly much faster, stay near the top of the screen. Again, for the most part, I don't stay in this game long enough to really tell the difference between things. <laughs> the thing about the pterodactyl, the pterodactyl, is um, so he's designed basically to attack idle players so that you won't just like get down to one guy and ignore it and try to have your game go on forever. You need some sort of mechanic that will move things on, you know, flush you out, and make you put another quarter in. So the pterodactyl is designed to attack you that way and was designed intentionally to be very difficult to defeat because the only vulnerability it has is you have to stab it in its open mouth. So during a specific animation frame, as the mouth goes up and down, there's one particular frame that if you can get your lance into its mouth, you can kill the pterodactyl. Otherwise, it's totally immune. Um, but that brings up two of the bugs that were in the game originally when it got released. There was a belly flop bug, which was discovered during testing. And it lets, when you have two um, platforms that are really close together and it looks like you shouldn't be able to fit through them, you can actually pop through them. And it was left in even after it was found because it facilitates some interesting sneak attacks. So they decided, you know what, that's going to be part of the mechanic. And if you can learn to hit the the middle section between two platforms just right, you can pop through and attack people from behind. I tried it. I can't do it. So I, But supposedly that bug is still in there. But then there's also the pterodactyl bug. So the, the pterodactyl, which was supposed to be, you know, hey, if, you, if you're too idle, it's going to come at you and you have to hit in this one frame in its open mouth. So that was the uh, the safety net that people wouldn't be able to just play forever. But there was a they changed the art for the pterodactyl just before shipping, which of course then changed the nature of those animation frames and it introduced a bug making it really easy to defeat if you wait at a particular ledge you just face a certain way and it'll come right at you and you'll kill it and you can basically sit on that ledge and kill an infinite number of pterodactyls so they're like whoopsie so they rushed out a new rom so there's actually multiple roms out there and the the common rom is one with that bug fixed but the original one uh that the distributors were all complaining about was where people soon discovered you could just sit on this game and get an, an infinite amount of, you could just walk away and you'll never die. Whoops. Yep. I, I tried that as well as the belly flop bug and I, I got nowhere, but uh, apparently that is one of the tricks that these guys that, that, that get the high scores do is, is they will um, rack up a bunch of extra lives using the, the pterodactyl bug and, and then you can, you can take a break and do what you need to do and come back and you'll still have enough to continue the game. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess one last thing I should bring up, uh, well, we can talk about the Joust Master as well, but before, it was a fellow named Futz, Bill Futzenroder, I think it would be. It's um, th- He was the guy who actually programmed this. John Newcomb was the designer. And Futz, this was the only arcade game he programmed, um, although he then went on to be the programmer for a lot of pinball games. And and the, the, the people behind this game really moved on mostly to pinball. So uh, Jan Hendricks, or maybe Jan Hendricks, and Python Angelo are the did the art and Python is worth mentioning because he unfortunately passed away very recently just this month actually yeah and he's quite famous for um, mostly again doing a lot of pinball quite a famous fellow in pinball and they used the book animals in motion as a reference when they were doing the art for this because they created all of the the um animation cells one at a time by hand everything was programmed in assembly language the whole thing only uses 96k of memory i mean that's why it's so fast and so tight is this is old-fashioned hand crafting coding on this um python is as i think we mentioned last week also the designer of bubbles so i would say this one a triumph bubbles a little less so <laughs> um, but it is unfortunate that he recently passed away yeah um, you had mentioned the um we're talking since we're talking about high scores and things like that we'll, we'll get to we'll get to our pitiful <laughs> scores in a little bit but it's interesting okay so the, the current world record holder is, his name is john McAllister, and he holds the world record of 107 million points and this was oh in, just beat me <laughs> <laughs> just barely set in 2010 the second place player is christian gringas uh, he reached 98 million points way back in 1983 and that was a record for a long time lon mcdonald reached 99.9 million in the spring of uh, 2013 says McDonald also played as many joust machines as he could locate across the United States, playing to 10 million points each game in order to reach a billion total points. In the spring of 2013, he completed this tour with his 100th game at the old Williams headquarters in Chicago. Um, there were uh, th- some of the original, it looks like John Newcomer was, was there in attendance when this happened. Walter Day was there. Oh, a small reunion the night before gathered three members of the original development team, uh, Newcomer, Python Angelo, and Bill Futz. In honor of the 30th birthday of the release of Joust, Joust was released on July 16, 1982. So on July 14, uh, 2012, Star World's arcade-sponsored Lon McDonald playing a game of Joust to 10 million points at the original Twin Galaxies location in Otomo, Iowa. Um, if you've been to Otomo lately or you've done any research, you know that that location is actually now an optical shop, like an eyeglass place or something. Um so it's it says that uh, there there's not there had not been a video game event since the mid '80s there, which I guess makes sense if it's a eyeglass shop, right? So, but uh, this is a a very very popular game. Uh, there's a lot of competition out there, and it's easy to see why because as difficult as it is, it's it's really replayable. It, there's something about it that that catches you, draws you in, and there's there's whatever normally frustrates me and annoys me about difficult games like this is, is not there with joust. I love joust. I completely agree. And, and I was reading about Lonnie McDonald's, um, uh, attempt to get the the scores on all the machines across America as well. There's still a site up about that called joustmaster.com and you can read about it. And he did actually find a hundred joust machines and, have them all go to, you know, basically 10 million points. Um, so it's just, that's all. So he did this whole uh, Joust Master across America thing. It just, as you can, they actually have a whole site still up where you can read all the details for all the different ones he, he went and found. Um, very, very cool. And I, you know, this is the kind of game that would bring that out. There are certain 
early 80s iconic games where you can see somebody going across a country and trying to play it all like you, you would do it with pac-man you would do it with donkey kong maybe do it with frogger and i think you could do it with joust like there's certain games that just have that repeat appeal that you could seek them out like, and try to play that in every state or something so it's completely fitting you would do that um although i can't imagine getting 10 million points <laughs> let alone getting 10 million points a hundred different machines yeah that's that's uh Man, that's dedication. But then again, this is this is the kind of game that inspires uh, that sort of loyalty, and and people love it because um, again, the the mechanic is great. I think that it's it's neat that they went with they went with let's hey let's get away from shooting and killing and guns and uh, not not that there was anything wrong with those kind of games, but there were a lot of them. I mean, the, the arcade market was just flooded with them. So this was a new and unique um, mechanic, and I. As with most, as well as with all Defender games, I think, or all Williams games, uh, there's that that Williams polish. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. this is a Williams game from the, the second that you walk up to it. It sounds like Williams. The color scheme is a Williams game, and and all the little finishing polishes that make it stand out from the other games are there. You know, it uses the the kind of old English these and thys and thous. <laughs> yep. When you even when you're not playing the the attract screen and. And how to play and things like that. Meet thine enemies, and um, the the sound effects are great. You know, they, it makes a little screech noise when you when you knock off a uh, an enemy um, knight, and um, when you appear on screen, you you kind of just sort of like almost warp in, I guess, from a, a platform. And the the sound effects that go along with it, everything about it is is great. And I noticed that in these in the later levels, even when there's a lot of a ton of action going on on the screen, the game never lags. You never feel like you're pressing the flat button and it's it's lagging and you're dying because of it. It's it's very smooth and responsive. And um, you know, Williams was known for for quality games, and this is this is one of them. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent agree with that. I can't believe I'm agreeing with you so much in this show. I know it's very. Uh, you know what? In fact, it, it lags like crazy. Terrible game. <laughs> I hate this game. Oh, you just said flat, 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 flat. Um, so this got ported a bunch, bunch of oh, home, yeah, to everything. ports to everything. There was a sequel, Joust Two: Survival of the Fittest. I've never played it. There was a pinball version released in 1983. I've also never played that. Looks like fewer than 500 were um, made. And according to my notes, in addition to single-player gameplay, it featured competitive two-player gameplay with players on opposite sides of the machine. That sounds awesome. That sounds totally awesome. And I but want not to play quite that as badly. not quite as cool as Sorry Charlie's Cabinet, where the second player would actually go into the game. <laughs> well, I'm sure the Joust Two Pinball Machine is somebody lays in the cabinet <laughs> and puts their fingers up that he builds the ball off of. Something equally awesome that we will make up later. Um, for you, and- um, for you iOS fans, for you Apple fans, uh, a couple of years ago, Midway released their Midway Arcade game which was it was sort of a it's it's a game that you download and then you buy the games within in within that i don't know store to play and uh, they released defender and spy hunter and and joust was one of them so if if you want to play this on your your ipad you can personally i, I if i'm going to play it on my ipad i'm going to i'm going to play play it on imame or something like that mm-hmm. play the real thing but i've heard that that it's basically that the stuff in midway arcade is is really is really good they didn't try to do any fancy stuff with it so if you're not willing to jailbreak your device or you you you'd rather play a more modern equivalent then midway arcade seems to be the way to go cool i guess two other versions to mention is uh at, at 2001, at the Classic Gaming Expo in Las Vegas, the previously unreleased Atari Soft, 
prototypes for the ColecoVision surfaced, and those are now floating around if you want to play um, Joust on your ColecoVision. And my favorite version, Tiger Electronics marketed a handheld keychain adaptation of Joust in 1998, and it was part of their Extreme Chain series. (laughs) They did Tempest, Moon Patrol, Frogger, Defender, Space Invaders, a bunch of them, including Joust. And uh, we'll have a link over to the handheldmuseum.com. has got a link to all the Tiger keychains. They look kind of sweet, and I think I might want to try try to collect those because they're really tiny, and I could have a whole collection, and it would go in a drawer. And the movie rights for this were optioned in 2007. (laughs) So Hmm. CP Productions optioned it from Midway Games uh, to make a movie. I don't think a movie's in in production, but oddly, somebody is at least considering it. That's strange. I don't know how you would make a movie out of this. (laughs) Nope. Nope. Um, And then I guess there's just the cabinet to talk about, which is fairly straightforward cabinet. I mean, there's nothing too super amazing about it as a cabinet, although it's really appealing. I mean, it's it's your basic classic cabinet <laughs> so nothing, nothing, i mean to be honest there's nothing that exciting about the look of it other than i really like the side art i'm a big fan as listeners to the show will know of full size side art i love the side well done side art on on a machine and this has some awesome stuff so it's the knight on the ostrich and with a huge lance and it basically goes from a couple feet off the ground right to the top of the 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 cabinet looks amazing. Other than that, it's a you know dark cabinet. You got your two joysticks. There's just left and right joysticks. You got your flat button. Fairly decent, uh, like you know, looking uh, joust marquee at the top. But nothing about the cabinet. This is oh my god. This is such a different cabinet. It's sort of just a well implemented, normal sort of cabinet. There were twenty six thousand upright cabinets shipped so it's a fairly easy cabinet to get your hands on it doesn't go for crazy money a few hundred bucks you can get yourself a a cab the artwork that i really like on the side is stenciled on rather than application so frequently it'll get painted over or so but we'll have a link in the show notes to stencils that you can buy if you want to redo a cabinet you can refinish one now the interesting one though was there was also a cocktail cabinet and I have never seen that one before. And just like they did something different with the pinball machine, here they also really focused on the two-player game. So instead of the normal cocktail cabinet where you sit across from each other and you play the game, this features side-by-side seating, which kind of makes sense if you think about it because you play at the same time, and so you can't have the screen rotate back and forth between the players and you can't have one person looking at it upside down so they make a cabinet where you both sit at the same side and you're looking at the screen together um, because of that though it meant they also could use the same ROM chips as in the upright one so it's relatively easy to manufacture one of these yourself but it's hard to get your hands on an original because they only made somewhere between 200 and 500 of these so they're particularly rare and particularly expensive yeah I'd imagine that that's the one that the collectors are going to want sure uh, yeah Plus, it would be different. Like, you don't see a lot of cocktail machines where both of you sit on the same side. That's kind of cool. It would make a good coffee table. Have it in front, of your, uh, in front of your TV, and every once in a while, you dip into Joust to decide who gets to pick the next show. I like it. I think if it were my coffee table, it'd end up with books and plates and <laughs> remote controls on it and stuff. So I don't know that that would be a good idea for me. Okay, so Carrington of Carrington's Cabinets, et cetera. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my name. <laughs> Would this be a cabinet that you would need to own? No. 
I do think it's a game that plays amazingly well on a real cabinet. If you're in an arcade and they have this, it's a game to walk up to. It's crazy fast. It's wonderful. Screen looks good. And I'm really familiar with how it plays on a real machine because this last weekend, I was in Disney World. I was down in Florida. I went to Disney World. And at downtown Disney, there's that big arcade there. I went in there looking for... um, I fixed it Felix Jr. stuff and got a nice photo of me posing with a big uh, <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph statue. So maybe I'll post that on the show notes as well. But I got to play against my nephew on an actual Joust cabinet. And man, this game plays great on a cabinet. So I, in fact, I got my high score that we'll be talking about today on that cabinet, beating down my nephew. <laughs> so that was awesome. <laughs> I have a photo of that too. Um, but that said, it is a game that plays perfectly in MAME. And with such simple controls, you need left and right joystick and a button. You can even play this technically using keyboard and a, and a mouse, but it's much easier with a joystick. So technically, you don't need a cabinet. That said, I like this game enough, and I could never, ever, ever get bored of this game. If I'm putting together an arcade full of 10, 20 machines, definitely 20, I'm going to pick up a Joust cabinet. I think it's a classic. I think it's worth playing like all the time. Now, see, as you're talking, I'm, I'm looking over at my, my X-Arcade here, the, the dual stick, and it occurs to me that as much fun as it is to play solo in MAME, and that's just fine. If if I'm going to play with another person, uh, which for me is a big part of the appeal of Joust, it's you know having that that other other human component to to compete against and and trash talk as you're playing. Um, you either need something like the X Arcade, uh, which has the dual sticks, or you would need the cabinet. I don't think it would be because it's it's two player simultaneous play. I don't think you could really do that easily on a, on a keyboard at least not and have a really good time no this is a cabinet worth owning and it's cheap it's an it's a it's a not expensive but very good looking classic cabinet with a game you'd never get bored of i i recommend this as a buy carrington how'd you do i did poorly <laughs> <laughs> well i may have beaten my nephew <laughs> that doesn't really say much uh the best score i got playing all over the place but my, was on an actual cabinet i got fifty thousand eight hundred and fifty, oh, which man. put me as number five of the six daily buzzards <laughs> that day on the machine but i didn't even break into the joust champions the nice thing about williams games is they normally have a really nice high score list this keeps track of both daily and all-time machines keeps 40 joust champions i didn't even come close to breaking into that on this machine so 5850 and what did you do uh i didn't do nearly as well let's move on so <laughs> you start out with five ostriches i guess yes uh, which is quite a few i thought it was it very very nice with the number of ostriches you get, ostri you get <laughs> but you can burn through them rather quickly as i discovered you yes. you get an extra bird at twenty thousand points uh, i'm told <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see. Okay. It's the best, for whatever reason, the best. And, and I'm, I'm sure that I did better when I was younger and I had better reflexes and I wasn't an old decrepit man. Uh, the best I could muster this week after several hours of play was 19,000 even. Well, the thing is, I don't really judge you for that because most of my games that I played were in that range. Like 20 grand, 19,000, 15,000, 10,000. <laughs> Honestly, most of the time I play, that's all I do. I don't have the knack of this game, and yet I love it. Like, not being good at it in no way lessens the appeal of this game for me. Exactly, yeah. That, and that's, that's, that's a standout. Uh, a standout for me for this game, and that's, that's why – well, it's not why I like it, but uh, it's, a un, it's a unique experience all the way around. It's not a shooter. Mm-hmm. There's, nothing, there's no other games really like it. I mean, and I don't know that you could 
do anything that sort of resemble Joust without immediately people screaming, ah, Joust ripoff, just because mm-hmm. it's such a, such a different mechanic than ever, anything else that, that, that's been any, any other arcade title that's been made. So it's iconic. Absolutely. And like every Williams game, I'm terrible at it. They didn't make <laughs> any games that are easy or any games that I'm good at, but I no. love them anyway. And, and unlike defender, I can't even blame the number of buttons because it's a two way <laughs> no. joystick and a single button with it's defender, button. defender. I can say, well, there's five buttons here and I got to press one to turn around and press another one to turn around the other way and thrust. And, ah, this and is I was just- about to say it will, I need a Williams game that has no buttons, but then I immediately, thought of the two joystick games they have like wait no i'm terrible at those two <laughs> so even when they make games with no buttons i'm bad at them well williams right. just makes a- williams made challenging games and i think they did them really well uh williams just like you say they they were known for a quality game for a reason polish fast difficult endlessly challenging but endlessly fun except for bubbles except for bubbles <laughs> Well, maybe next week's game will be a little bit easier for us, Carrington. Almost certainly would have to be. What's it sound like? Sounds like this. All right, everybody. Well, that brings us to the end of another uh, No Quarter podcast. I miss us already. Bye, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. <laughs>